Welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson. And in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the NFL and what's going down there. We'll be talking about college football's return. We'll be discussing the NBA and what is happening with all the things in the offseason. We'll touch on the WNBA playoffs and we'll have our best for last. Now, as always, you can find the show on iTunes and Spotify. And don't forget to follow the social media handle at JTimesports in order for all your breaking news and coverage. Now, as always, don't forget to sit back and get ready to learn something. missed you guys um excuse my voice a little bit i'm coming down with something as you guys know who listen to the show every week or when the show comes out which it'll get back to being every week i have um i've you know i'm starting a coaching job my high school coaching the weather tends to get to me every once in a while uh allergies sinuses and such and so therefore you have the situation i am in now in which case i don't sound the greatest so if i cough a little bit or my voice sounds a little weird please excuse that and I definitely appreciate it. Um, I definitely appreciate the cooperation. And of course, I always appreciate you guys uh, listening in um, and supporting the podcast and the social media. Because again, I try to keep you guys as informed as I possibly can. But we're going to jump right into the NFL. Of course, the NFL is mere days away. This podcast comes out Saturday night. So of course... um, it will be Saturday night, Thursday, four or five days away from the NFL season, or five, six days away, really, from the NFL season ramping up. And so, of course, we have to start off with getting the business of the NFL out of the way. Um, and the big news, of course, over the past month, over the past few months, has been the Deshaun Watson uh, case. The uh, judge, Sue Robinson, suggested her recommendation was Deshaun Watson be suspended six games with nothing further. As you guys know, I was on the 25-game tip, but it was kind of going to be a dual-season situation. They think 25 games is a lot, but I was going to use the 17 games from last season since he never played, have him pay back that salary, uh, whatever he earned that year, and then um, suspend him eight games this season. So it will be a 25-game suspension, including a $20 million fine, give or take, worst suspension or one of the worst suspensions in NFL history considering one of the worst uh, situations in NFL history, and then he was going to be eligible for week nine. The NFL basically split the difference. They suspended him for 11 games, fined him $5 million. Uh, of course, he will, he will lose the pay, the $1 million, uh, half the, the half million dollar, rather, base salary he was supposed to earn uh, with the Houston Texans, or with the Cleveland Browns, I'm sorry, uh, for this season. So it's about a $5.6 million fine. Um, along with an 11-game suspension. Now, it was a tricky situation because no, at no point were we going to agree as a unit on what the suspension would be. 
that. It, that would be an unrealistic situation to say that we're all going to sit here and agree that Deshaun Watson deserves a certain level of a suspension. Again, that was going to be pretty much impossible for us to agree on. But I do think 11 games kind of fit the punishment because it is one of the worst suspensions in, in league history and is based on the NFL guidelines for suspension. Um, the NFL has precedent and they have rules on how things are things are done. And because of that uh, situation, Deshaun Watson's 11 games is pretty much as max as they can get it, especially with no criminal convictions. Hell, not, not even indictments, um, purely civil suits. The uh, NFL kind of had their hands tied. And that's what Judge Sue L. Robinson uh, spoke about when she gave her ruling. She was saying that based on the NFL rules, this is the suspension she thought it warranted. And she's not going to do the NFL's job of rewriting their own uh, rule book and their own punishments. So that's why she came with his games. The NFL came back. The NFL is pushing for a full season. The NFL PA and the NFL ultimately end up settling on 12 games, or 11 games rather. And Deshaun Watson's first game as the starting quarterback for the Cleveland Browns will be against his former team, the Houston Texans in Houston, uh, reportedly the site of his uh, alleged crimes. So that was the big news there. Also, contractual news. Jimmy G has renegotiated. Jimmy Garoppolo has renegotiated with the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, he drops his salary cap number from about 30 million, 26, 27 ish million, down to around 7 million. It has an opportunity to earn incentives of nearly doubling the value of the contract for playing time, et cetera, and statistical numbers. But it keeps Jimmy G in um, San Fran another year. It also features a full no trade and no tag clauses. So no trade clause does not mean you cannot be traded. It does mean, though, Jimmy G can pick where he goes. So let's say it's week seven. And for some reason, the Jaguars are five and two or four and three. And they've got a chance, you know, or the Colts, you know, four and three. That's the Colts, the Jags and another team are, are looking for a quarterback because due to injuries or bad play or whatever. You can't the Niners don't have the right to just dump Jimmy G on whoever this bad team is in order to just get something back for him. Jimmy G has the right to say, no, I don't want to go there. And he doesn't go. Also, with the no tag clause, it allows Jimmy G to get his true market value. If a situation were to arise where Trey Lance were to get hurt or Trey Lance ends up not being that good, they can't just franchise tag Jimmy G to keep on the roster another year. He has a full no tag clause. It's similar to Tom Brady's exit from New England. His contract ended the day before you were allowed to... Um, franchise tag a player so technically he was a free agent when the franchise tag window opened and so i think jimmy g has similar language in his contract where his this deal would end before the tag window opens a really weird trick there but it is effective for a guy in jimmy g's uh situation to get him away from an environment where he is not the um where he is not the center point of the offense He's not a center point of the future. Russell Wilson got his contract done with the Denver Broncos, a five-year, $245 million contract extension that brings his total contract to seven years, $296 million. Um, he's age 33. This will keep him under contract until he's 40, a.k.a. he's a Denver Bronco for the rest of his playing career. Um, the Broncos wanted to make sure of that. The Walton Painting family uh recently bought the broncos they wanted to ensure that they had their quarterback of the future they saw what Denver looked like before him 
Um, you need that guy. You need that guy. And so uh, many people, myself included, believe Russell Wilson can still co compete at a Super Bowl level. Therefore, seven-year deal, total deal in nearly $300 million. Um, aligns him in Denver, like I said, until he's 40, which would be the rest of his career. And, and you know, barring he pulled Tom Brady and goes, he's 45. But that would be the rest of his career. Speaking of Tom Brady... Um, he took a sabbatical off recently, about 11 days. He was away from the facility to deal with family stuff. And now there's reports coming out that he's going to have to make a decision really, really soon, whether he wants to have a family or whether he wants to keep playing football. Um, there, I mean, it, from what I've been seeing and hearing, um, it's gotten to the point where Giselle's like me or football and, or this family or football. And that's why he took the 11 days off, um, Obviously, choose family. If it comes down, if it comes down to family or football, choose family. That's just one of those situations where, my God, you, you have to choose your family. Football will go away. Your family will be for the rest of your life. Um, he has to choose family. But I think he had a goal to play until he was 45. This is his year 40. This is his age 45 season, and I think that he will walk away from the game officially after this season. But that is what's going on in Tom Brady's world. But the Russell Wilson and the Jimmy G contracts were interesting. Not necessarily the Jimmy G contracts, but the Russell Wilson deal for my next quick topic, and that would be the Lamar Jackson contract. Now, Lamar Jackson's contract has a unofficial deadline of week one. It's week one. Now, I don't know if that was game one or the start of the week, but the start of the week, it's week one. Uh, Lamar Jackson put in an unofficial unofficial deadline of negotiations that he would not negotiate during the season. He is his own representation. Um, he and his mother, but basically it's Lamar's own representation. And so I was talking to a few of my friends and we were discussing the um, Lamar Jackson contract situation. And you've got guys who are, you know, think, man, we don't want to give those guys any of that money. You know, Lamar's doing the right thing. He's representing himself and he's going to keep all his money. And you got other guys saying, yeah, but he ain't got no contract. Or, you know, he doesn't have a contract. So how can he possibly keep money he doesn't have? You know, he doesn't even have a contract yet. How can he keep financials he doesn't have? Um, and I fell in the thing of, look, I get what Lamar's trying to do. I love the point he's trying to prove. And you don't need a guy to negotiate a big deal. You know, Richard Sherman negotiated his own deal, but it was super incentive-laced. Um, he ended up into earning less than what he could have had he just uh, gotten a, a standard deal, but he went incentive based in order to try and maximize his value. And it wasn't great. But no one's represented themselves into these massive, not to my memory, no one's represented themselves to this massive deal, especially a quarterback. So Lamar Jackson's in a unique position. He has the ability to negotiate a five year, $260 million contract. And keep all 260. Don't have to share a singular penny with anyone else. However, if the agent represents you or a lawyer represents you as an official agent, they are only legally allowed to take 3% of your contract. So if you sign, I did the math, if you sign for $260 million guaranteed, the agent, you will still take home, sorry, you will still take home $252.2 million. You will still earn 97% of your contract. Get the deal done. Call an agent. Bring in a um, 
a Drew Rosenhaus. Bring in a Lee Steinbing. Bring in a CAA. Bring in a Rich Paul. He does football now. A Clutch Sports. Bring in, or just bring in a lawyer, you know? Because a lawyer's negotiating price, may, he, may, he may have to take 1%, maybe even 2%. Bring in somebody and get the deal done. But the it's kind of situation is kind of a two-fold situation. It's a double-edged sword for both sides. For Lamar Jackson, if he stays healthy, he'll do, he'll do what Kirk Cousins did. Franchise tagged me once, I'm top five paid. Franchise tagged me a second time, I'm probably going to be highest paid. Now the price has gone up because two more years of extensions have gone in. So now I'm truly going to be the highest paid and I'm probably going to fully guarantee it because I can hit true for agency. After that second franchise tag, it is financially impossible to absorb a third. So he'll be able to hit true free agency and have a bidding war for his services. With that bidding war, you saw what happened to Deshaun Watson. He got a fully guaranteed deal. Lamar Jackson's got more accolades than Deshaun Watson. So Lamar Jackson probably ends up hitting a fully guaranteed contract in two for agency after having two years of fully guaranteed money on franchise tags. That's the Kirk Cousins game. That's an expensive one for the Baltimore Ravens because you can't move the good guaranteed money around. If it's fully guaranteed, you can't shuffle the cap space around nearly as effectively as you can with partially guaranteed contracts, which is the norm in the NFL. But if you take a look at a guy, with, well, sorry, if you go back and you look at the, uh, the flip side of it, not having that contract, maximizing your value, Lamar Jackson hurts himself. He has no guarantee, he has no contractual financial windfall coming. Because to me, one major injury, uh, uh, Liz Frank injury, an ACL, an MCL, a meniscus, um, hamstring, quad, something like that, drops any chance of him getting a fully guaranteed deal because now you're injury risk. Look, like I said, I said it from Jump Street. Hire a lawyer, hire an agent, hire someone to get this deal done, bite the 3% bullet. They don't have to negotiate you in endorsements. They don't have to represent you in media or anything, but you need someone to get this done to create a buffer between you and the organization because now you're hearing how the organization devalues you at certain spots in order to reduce your contractual obligation. You know, you're hearing every little thing instead of having an agent or somebody there representing you as a buffer uh, to the organization so that you don't hear this kind of stuff. Get the, get the contract done. Like I said, hire a Lee Steinberg, hire a Drew Rosenhaus, hire a Clutch Sports, hire a, well, a well-respected lawyer in order to get this done. Um, that is my advice to Lamar Jackson. Lock it in as soon as possible to ensure that not only are you financially um, financially stable, but you are also um, contractually obligated to the team. You, you, you know you have a home. You know you're protected against injury. And like I said, you can even change the language. Instead of a raw dollar amount, put it to a cap number. He wants 13% of the cap every year. The cap goes up. So his money will go up too. Something like that, you know. Um, that'll be a way for Lamar to stay highest paid and, you know, be tied to the team. There's plenty of ways you can do it, but he needs to get the deal done. And now we're going to shift into discussing some of the big games for opening week. Now, the one, the only game of this I will pick right now and even really dive into deep detail is the Buffalo Bills and the Los Angeles Rams. And that is because... I, um, the next show will come out next week, and of course the Rams game will have already been played. So we'll recap it on next week's show, but we will not uh, discuss it, obviously, because it'll be after the game. So, 
we're going to jump right into it. Bills at Rams. Uh, Rams hosting, obviously. Super Bowl champion gets the uh, honor of hosting the, the first game of the season. Thursday night home opener for the Los Angeles Rams where they will raise the banner. Uh, they've already received their rings. Um, huge, huge moment for the organization um, led by Sean McVay, uh, coach Stan Kroenke, the owner, Let's Need the GM. Um, huge moment for those guys, along with Matt Stafford and Aaron Donald, the Cooper Cup. Uh, I wonder if Odell Beckham will be there. He, he's re-signed by the Rams or if he's a free agent. I wonder if he'll make an appearance um, at the banner raising ceremony. But absolutely spectacular moment for the city of Los Angeles, like I said, and the Rams organization. But the Bills are in town. And the Bills truly believe, and they have a case, they truly believe they're 13 seconds away. Well, they're 13 seconds away from the AFC title game. And I don't think Cincinnati has the firepower to stay with them the way that they stay with KC. Um, the, the Bills can, can make a claim they were very close to Super Bowl themselves. Um, and so they're going to come in there hungry. They're going to come in there excited. Usually the Thursday night home opener does not go well for the Super Bowl team because it, it, it's a very uh, distracting day. You know, the banner's going up. Your family's all there. It's a longer than normal pregame. It's a longer than normal media session week. There's a lot more people trying to pull you in every which, which way direction. It's a rough situation. So I'm going to go with Josh Allen and the Bills uh, to beat the Rams 34-24. Uh, as they just, as the, as the Rams, Bills come out looking to win the AFC and to get to the Super Bowl. And the Rams, again, like I said, dealing with ring night. It's a rough, rough time to deal with it. Um, dealing with, not ring night, dealing with banner night and that opening night kickoff. The, uh, I have the Bills winning by about 10, 34-24. And then some other big games throughout the week, which we will discuss a little bit more. We, we'll discuss them a lot more in detail. Um, Storylines may change. We'll discuss them a lot more in detail next week. But that is the Steelers at the Bengals battle of the AFC North to open the season. You've got the Steelers who have still not, not as of right this second, named a starting NFL quarterback for this season. Um, but they are looking to bounce back from a pretty mediocre season. And then the Bengals, of course, who actually made it to the Super Bowl, are looking to get back to the Super Bowl. Even though the loser of the Super Bowl usually has a massive hangover um, and drops tremendously the next season. Uh, so we're going to see how the Bengals are able to play there. The Browns at the Panthers, the Baker Mayfield game. Uh, the only thing that would have made this better if it was in Cleveland. But, of course, Cleveland traded Baker Mayfield to the Panthers. Baker Mayfield has since won the job uh, with Carolina. And so he will face his old squad week one um, in his new home uh, in Carolina. So Baker versus the Browns. Heads up. Um, heads up. A massive lineup. Now, that was our timer. We're going to go more to time segments to try to keep this show a little more organized. That was our first segment timer. We're going to get these last two talked about in real quickly. Chiefs at Cardinals. That's going to be a very interesting game. Patrick Mahomes' first real game without Tyreek Hill. Uh, Kyler Murray recently signed his massive extension. Um, so we're going to see how those two teams look on the field. Again, we'll discuss that next week. And then Bucks at Cowboys, a rematch of last week. They kind of, last year, they kind of put a home-and-home series. Uh, Cowboys went to Bucks last year, and now the Bucks are going to the Cowboys. So that'll be a very interesting game there. Again, we'll discuss it a lot more in detail next week. But up next, we're going to shift to the college football landscape. I'm recording this during the Michigan game. Um, and so 
Uh, we're going to discuss this a lot more um, college football in our next segment. Welcome back into the show, and now we're going to shift to college football. It is the real opening week. I know last week they had college games on, but that is what people in the industry, even the business, calls it now. Week zero. It is not the official start of the season. This week is week one. You've got some heavy hitters on the schedule, but we're going to start off first with the college football playoff expansion it is official. It is happening. The playoff is going from four teams to 12 teams. It will start no later than 2026. And the first round is crazy. So the first round can either be held at a neutral site or a home team stadium. Now, I don't know what major team is going to say, you know, we, you guys can have it. Don't worry about it. We'll play at a neutral site. I want that in my stadium. How it's set up, the top, it'll be 12 teams, obviously. The six highest ranked conference champions. So that'd be obviously the Power Five schools uh, plus another uh, conference, and then six at-large bids. So that would be just how it would break into twelve. Those teams would get re-ranked, obviously. So um, let's say, like last year, Georgia would have been ranked number one. Bam would have ranked number three. Um, I'm trying to think of a con- or like a USC. It would be the fifth highest ranked conference champion. I say, like they say, they play at twenty-three. But they were getting re-ranked to 12, technically. Because, again, they would be the top, the top 12 teams, and they'd be one of the six highest-ranked conference champions, so they would get in. Also, this is providing value. This is going to help conference realignment. Yeah, I think the NCAA doesn't love conference realignment, but they kind of had no way to stop it. Now, by having the six highest-ranked conference champions, the Big 12 is a viable conference again. The Pac-12 is a viable conference because now if you win that conference, you're in the playoff. The whole thing with the conference realignment was how do we get in the playoff? And if we if we make conferences, just these two massive conferences, I know if I win it, I can get myself in the playoff. I know the SC champions in the playoff. I know the Big 12 champions. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, guys. Again, I'm a little sick. I know the Big 10 champions in the uh, playoff. Like those things. And then I know pretty much the Pac-12 champion is in the playoffs. Therefore, these schools were trying to go from the Pac-12 to the Big 10. They're trying to go from the ACC and the Big 12 to the SEC, because they know those two conferences get in regardless. Now with the rankings now being the highest six ranked conference champions, that definitely dictates a little bit of a change, because now I can stay in the Big 12, I can stay in the Pac-12, I can stay in the ACC, I just gotta win, I gotta do what I gotta do, I'd be a top 10 conference champion, I get it. And so that will be Interesting to see how these um, conferences decide to realign, or rather, how conferences deal with realignment now, because again, the top six conference champions get in. Now they basically stole my idea. I mean, they did. The only thing is, though, they went to twelve instead of eight, but they stole my idea. My idea is you guys knew for the longest. Play the first round. No, I had twelve. Twelve. 
play the first round at a conference at a uh, at, at the local school. That'd be very very unique, and then put the rest of the playoff eight four and two inside the traditional structure. You have six New Year's six bowls. Even the Rose Bowl I think is participating now. You have five. I'm sorry, New Year's six bowls. You have the Rose, the Orange, the Fiesta, the Cotton, um, the Orange, the Fiesta, the Cotton, the Sugar, and the Rose Bowl is your big five. And then, of course, the sixth game would be the national championship game, which I was at a neutral site stadium anyway. You play the games inside of the bowl structure. How it would set up would be the higher seed gets to go to their bowl. So if the how I would set it up anyway, the higher seed gets to go to their bowl. Uh, they're still trying to finalize how the bowl structure would work, but this would be my suggestion. The higher seed gets to go. So if the SEC is the five seed playing the 12 seed, they go to the Sugar Bowl because that's the SEC bowl. If it's a 6 seed Pac-12 versus an 11 seed SEC, you go to the Rose Bowl because that's the Rose, you know what I'm saying? That's the ACC's bowl. Uh, that's the Pac-12's bowl. So that's something I would look at in terms of um, location sites. And like the Big Ten and the Pac-12 play every year in the Rose Bowl. Regardless, the Pac, the higher seed champion gets it. So the Pac-12 team is a five seed and the Big Ten team is an eight seed. They technically both would host. The, the Pac-12 gets the right to the Rose Bowl. The Big Ten has to go to the Fiesta or the Cotton or whatever. But they have to go to a different location. So that would be something that, that would be incredibly interesting to see. But they're gonna play the first round of college campuses nine times out of 10. I don't see anybody selecting neutral site. Then you would go to inside the bowl system for the final eight. It, it, it will prevent I know what it's doing for. It's going to provide way more money. It's right, starting to get loaded in 2026 when the new TV contract kicks in. It's going to provide way more money. And it's going to prevent opt-outs. Why did a Kenneth Walker opt out of Michigan State last year? They had no chance at a, at a title. Why did Kenny Pickett leave Pittsburgh high and dry? They had no chance at a title. Under a 12-team system, both of those teams would have had an uh, opportunity in the playoff. They both would have been in the playoff had they been 12 teams last year. Top four seed by very important because now you get an extra week off to prepare. You get an extra week to heal bodies. Um, very to see how this goes. So that is the big news in college football. The playoffs is going to 12 teams. Skip right over eight. Went to 12. Um, and we're going to see just, you know, just if a 12 seed makes a run. Or if a 7 seed makes a run. That team, that team might not have been in the playoff. They make a run to the title game. You know. We get to see if that five or six seed really would be just as good as that four seed. Um, so we're going to definitely keep our eye on the playoff, obviously. And, of course, when uh, things get a little more finalized in terms of how they're going to do the bowl structure, we will definitely keep you guys set up in there. But we have two major games to open up week one Saturday, and they're both on ABC. You have Notre Dame and Ohio State, immediately follow or Georgia and Oregon immediately followed by Notre Dame and Ohio State. They said both ABC contests. These games are absolutely massive. For Notre Dame, for Georgia, Oregon, you've got the thing of the Pac-12 versus the SEC. You've got the East Coast versus the West Coast. You've got Dan Lanning, who was the defensive coordinator at Georgia just last season. He's not the head coach at Oregon. And they're gonna op open the season against each other. For Notre Dame and Ohio State, you have Marcus Freeman taking over Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly, of course, is at LSU. We'll talk about them in a, in a couple of minutes. But you've got Marcus Freeman 
Take it on for Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly was the most successful. He was winning his coach in Notre Dame history. Marcus Freeman is the first black head coach in Notre Dame. He's a young guy. He's not even 40 yet. He gets an opportunity to go lead his squad, who's top five preseason ranked, against an Ohio State squad and Ryan Day, who had their, you know, 11 and 2, lost to Michigan. It was a disaster every year in Ohio State world. They get to go uh, play Ohio State this year to open the season off. So massive playoff implications early in terms of Notre Dame doesn't have a lot of big dogs in their schedule because they don't play a conference schedule. They don't have a conference championship kicker available to them. They don't have a, well, we smacked everybody in our conference. We just stumbled in week one, you know, kind of kicker. They're independent schedule. They make their own schedule. So therefore, they're held to their schedule standard. And like I said, not having that kicker available to you of winning a conference title or of running through your conference unscathed is uh, an issue in terms of uh, taking an early L, uh, such as losing to Ohio State, especially convincingly if that would have happened. Um, that would be a major problem for Notre Dame's candidacy to getting into the college football playoff. Conversely for Ohio State, they need, they need a big win in terms of a confidence booster. Like I said, they lost to Michigan last year, and they had a, they went 11-2. Like I said, a horrible year in the eyes of Ohio State. Losing to Michigan ruins the whole year. And therefore, they um, have to bounce back against Notre Dame. Again, they have a pretty decent strength of schedule because they play in the Big Ten Conference. However, um, Michigan was pretty good. Michigan State's okay. Iowa looks like an abject disaster. Um... But non-conference games may tip you in in case you stumble somewhere in conference. Non-conference went over Notre Dame may tip you in uh, to the playoffs. So that is definitely something that Ohio State wants to ensure happens. Like I said, Georgia and Oregon has all the storylines one could possibly imagine. Um, East, West, ODC, now the new head coach. Um, it is going to be a very interesting game. Georgia has to face a lot of seniors. You look at a George Pickens, you look at a Jordan Davis, you look at a Nicobe Dean, um, just to name a few. Those guys are all now in the NFL. And so that is what Georgia has to replace. Kirby Smart, you know, Kirby Smart got over the hill, but now he's standing on top of it, and everyone's trying to come get him. So we're definitely going to see uh, this season how Georgia plays. We're now going to pick both of these games. In Notre Dame versus Ohio State, Ohio State's like a 17.5 point favorite. I am going to say Ohio State wins the game, but not by that much. I'm going to go Ohio State 31, Notre Dame 24. Uh, it's going to be real close late. Smith and Jigba makes a play for Ohio State and wins the game. Ohio State wins 31-24. Georgia and Oregon. I don't recall the points spread off the top of my head, but I know Georgia is favorite. I am going to um, go with Georgia in this game. Um, I just think they're going to be a little too physical for Oregon. And they're going to win the game 38-23. Um, Georgia wins over Oregon. So now we're going to quickly jump into just a little bit of news. Uh, a little bit of preseason picks. For the Heisman, I've got C.J. Stroud out of Ohio State. For the national title, I've got Alabama getting back to the mountaintop. I feel a lot more confident in my Heisman pick with C.J. Stroud than I do in my national title pick with Alabama. Um, Stroud, to my opinion, is the best QB prospect in the country, but it's really close to him and Bryce Young. Alabama does have the best defensive player in the country, Will Anderson. 
Um, so it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very hard to beat that Alabama squad. They're pretty deep and loaded this year. Didn't lose a whole lot to the draft. Ohio State's on a mission. Uh, C.J. Stroud, like I said, to me, is the best quarterback in the country. We're definitely going to keep our eye on those two. And then two big-time head coaches make their debuts at their new schools. Lincoln Riley obviously left Oklahoma unceremoniously. He starts his season against Rice at USC. And Brian Kelly, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, after being the winningest coach in Notre Dame history, he, he came south to Baton Rouge, Louisiana at LSU. And now he opens his season in New Orleans against Florida State. As a Tiger fan, I can't wait to see how Brian Kelly has the team looking. Uh, check the timer. Hey, 20 seconds left on the timer. Getting kind of used to this segment thing. Um, but up next, we're going to shift to the NBA and talk about what has been going down in the association. Welcome back into the show. And now we're going to talk about the NBA and what is going down there. The big news, obviously, last week was that Donovan Mitchell trade was completed by the Utah Jazz. Um, However, it was not to the team that I and pretty much everyone else on planet Earth expected, which is the New York Knicks. Instead, Spider Mitchell heads to Cleveland. Um, in a package that includes three unprotected first-round picks in the 25, 27, and 28, or 25, 27, and 29 NBA drafts, two pick swaps in the intertwining drafts in 26 and 28, Lori Marketing, Colin Sexton, and Ochi Abaji. Uh, I apologize if I mispronounced that, but he was the first-round pick of the Cavaliers this season out of Kansas. Uh, upon arrival, Colin Sexton immediately assigned a well, it, through the sign and trade, immediately inks a four-year, $72 million fully guaranteed deal with the Utah Jazz. So they have their point guard of the future. But Spider Mitchell is a Cleveland Cavalier. Now, this can be taken in multiple ways, depending on what side of the ledger you are on. If you're on the Cleveland side, you're, 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 thinking, you're thinking parade. You are thinking parade right now. Uh, you're thinking that you're one of the best teams in the East. You know, you've got one of the best backcourts in all the basketball. You've got a defensive wall up front in terms of Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. You don't have a wing to save your life, but um, you are, you're thinking, okay, I got buckets and I got protection and protection. Uh, I can make some noise in the East. If you're the Jazz, you netted six first round picks. You netted, you netted the rights to six first round picks. Three unprotected, two swaps, and effectively another first-round pick at Ochiabaji, which is the same thing that they did with um, with Minnesota. They end up getting four picks or the rights to five picks, and then Walker Kessler was a, was a lottery pick, so he basically had six first-round picks. Um, and so now the Utah Jazz has have 15 first-round picks between now and 2029. The Oklahoma City Thunder. Also have like 15 or 16 first round picks to 2029. 
Um, but, you know, Danny Ainge strikes again. He flipped two all-stars who couldn't get out of the first round into 12 or 13 different assets. And I'm sure he's not done dealing. I expect Mike Conley to be moved. I expect uh, Bojan Bondanovic to be moved. And Jordan Clarkson expected to be moved as well. Though That'll probably net him another five, six first-round picks if he does the deals right. You could be looking at, you know, 21 first-round picks between now and 2029. So, huge situation for the Utah Jazz. Absolutely massive move. Donovan Mitchell reportedly let out a scream on a golf course when he found out that not only was he traded, but he was traded to the Cavs and they kept all their key pieces. Um, huge gift for Kobe Altman, but he has a relationship with Danny Ainge. Um, he did the deal with Kyrie Irving with Danny Ainge. He's also made a Jay Crowder deal with Danny Ainge. So they have a relationship, previ- a previous relationship, kind of made the deal smooth over. Now, obviously, the big loser here is the Knicks. Um, we'll talk about the impact of the Cavs in a minute. But the big loser here is the Knicks. The Knicks have had the inside track on Donovan Mitchell this entire time. Actually, the New York Knicks have been setting up this move for like two years now. Um, they, they The entire front office is run by CAA, Donovan Mitchell's agency. You know, his dad has New York connections. Donovan Mitchell, reportedly, he tried to be Nick. He wanted to be a Nick. Um, you bring in a Jalen Brunson, but you ensure you have the money to absorb Donovan Mitchell's contract. You have eight tradable first-round picks. You have young assets. You have a R.J. Barrett. You have a, a O.B. Toppin. You have a Emmanuel Quickly. You have uh, these guys, Mitchell Robinson. Like, you have guys that are somebody that would want in back in the trade Donovan Mitchell. You have all the pieces necessary to get Donovan Mitchell. But in an effort to make Utah take your price and not just biting the bullet and grabbing Mitchell, you offer O.B. Toppin, R.J. Barrett, a couple of first-round picks that was all done, of course, by Cleveland's offer. Now, the players were not as good in Cleveland's deal. Um, the best player in the Cleveland deal is Colin Sexton. I think R.J. Barrett's a little better than Colin Sexton. But Utah wanted picks. You can see from the Minnesota trade, they went after picks. You can tell for the Cleveland trade, they went after unprotected first-round picks. And so that was what Utah wanted. New York did not meet that demand. There was some uh, angst and um, distrust and anger between the two organizations, and it led ultimately to Donovan Mitchell being a Cleveland Cavalier and not a New York Knicks. So once again, um, the Knicks miss out. We can add Donovan Mitchell to the almost Knicks uh, roster, which would be the best roster in the NBA. They almost had Zion Williamson. They almost had Donovan Mitchell. They almost had Kevin Durant Kyrie Irving. They almost had LeBron James. Um, just to name a few of the guys that the Knicks almost had, the only, I mean, the Knicks historically, though, do not do well at landing the big guy. Uh, they landed Stephon Marbury, and they landed Carmelo Anthony. That's pretty much it. Uh, there, there's no real draw. I mean, think about it. The Nets have had better free agency uh, luck than the Knicks have had. Um, so, the, uh, even big trade luck. They don't do very well landing, uh, you know, landing these trades, finalizing these deals. Something that the Knicks need to figure out. Uh, what the problem is with that. Normally, they abandon ship on a plan. This time, they stuck to the plan all the way to a T and then ultimately folded right at the end. Um, so, that is something that the Knicks organization has to figure out what's going on. Why can't they close these deals? Well, hell, even with free agencies, free agents, why can't they get in the room? Speaking of KD and Kyrie, they are staying in Brooklyn. Uh, that was a whole... Um, big massive thing whether Kevin Kai 
we're gonna stay in Brooklyn. Um, Kyrie had not requested a trade, but he had poked around, obviously. Kevin Durant had flat out requested a trade, which is something we covered in one of our last episodes, was the Kevin Durant trade request. Uh, ultimately, those requests became unanswered. He, I mean, they made calls, but they asked for ridiculous prices. I think with the full intent of never actually trading him. And then uh, Rich Kleiman, Katie's business manager, um, and the ownership and the leadership of the Nets put out a joint statement saying that Kevin would like to continue his partnership with the organization, um, and therefore would like to stay with the Nets. Therefore, he's going to stay with the Nets and uh, enter his four-year max extension with the organization. So big news there if you're a Brooklyn Nets fan, and just for the NBA in general. Immediately after that, Patrick Beverly tweeted out about Kevin Durant held up the league. Um, he held up the league. Um, and then, of course, KD answered with, you know, blame hashtag, blame KD. Pat Bev had a pretty weak response. But Pat Bev, right after that, gets traded to the Lakers. So maybe he knew that trade was going to happen. Um, Pat Bev is going to the Lakers. He gets redirected from the Tim, from the Timberwolves to the Jazz, from the Jazz to the Lakers uh, for Taylor Horton Tucker and Stanley Johnson. So maybe Patrick Beverly knew that trade was happening, but it cannot be done until Kevin Durant made whatever move he was going to make because maybe the Lakers had to use a Taylor Horton Tucker, a Stanley Johnson, a couple of first-round picks, and Russell Westbrook or whatever to get Kyrie Irving. So, um, you know, moves did start to happen. Spider Mitchell got tr- gets traded after Kevin Durant. Um, pulls his request. A couple of moves did happen right after uh, Kevin Durant's request officially ends. And so maybe Patrick Beverly was right after all. Uh, the Eurobasket is happening right now. It's the international, uh, the international European competition featuring a lot of your favorite stars. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo playing for Greece. We got Luka Doncic playing for Slovenia. We got Yusef Nurkic. You have Nikola Jokic. You have um, Batum is not playing this year for France, but you have France is a pretty good team. Dennis Schroeder is playing for Germany, um, and so it's a very high level competition with some NBA stars running around in the Eurobasket. In these wild environments, much crazier environments than you would see in the NBA arena. Um, and so, very interesting to watch that. Very cool to watch that. Uh, to see these guys playing for their country. It's a little bit more pride on the line uh, than simply playing for your NBA team. This is your country. So, you can see the pride um, exuding out of these guys whenever they really get rolling you know, for their home countries. And then in regards to uh, injuries, we have some injury news. Danilo Gallinari was originally diagnosed with a torn meniscus um, in his knee. And then after further evaluation, it was discovered it was actually a torn ACL. Now, he popped it before training camp. Six to 12 months. If it's 12 months, he's out for the year. If it's nine months, it puts him back right around the start of the playoffs. Now, that's a lot to ask a guy to come off the shelf to get back for the playoffs, but Boston's going to make the playoffs. So if he can get back to full basketball activities by, let's say, February, March, get him a month to ramp his body up, he, he could be ready indeed. They could drop Danilo Gallinari into the Boston Celtics lineup. Um, anything longer than that, I'm not bringing you back mid-playoffs. So every situation where he probably needs to be ramping up by February, late February, March, April, playoffs are in mid-April. Um, so that would be something to keep our eye on there. Uh, and then Alonzo Ball, Chicago Bulls guard Alonzo Ball, is dealing with uh, soreness and pain still in his knee when he tries to ramp up basketball activities. So he is out for all of training camp, and there is a, is a strong belief he will miss the beginning 
of the NBA season. Uh, he tore his meniscus back in January. In January, February, he's been still dealing with pain and inflammation from that. And so we're definitely going to keep our eye on that situation. Um, good player, good NBA player, but he's dealing with a knee injury. And that is the last thing you want when you are trying to uh, kick, re-kickstart your career. But up next, we're going to shift to the WNBA and we'll talk about the WNBA semifinals. Welcome back into the show, and now we're going to discuss the WNBA playoffs, and they are in the semifinal round. Now, the WNBA does their playoffs to me correctly. Well, not necessarily the formatting. I think they should at least play five game series all the way through. But I hated the one game, so I'll take three, three, five, five. That's it's really like the old NBA system way with three, five, seven, seven. Um, the WNBA is doing uh, three, five, three, three, five, five, uh, or three, five, five. Whatever how it works out, but three games for the first round, five games for the conference for the semifinals and the WNBA finals. But the reason why it's not called the conference finals is because the WNBA does unconference playoffs. They just have the best records, regardless of conference. So if it's six teams from the East, it's six teams from the East. Um, now because the WNBA only has twelve teams, eight teams make it. It usually never gets more imbalanced than five three. Um, so even in the semifinals, you have the Sky versus the Sun, two teams from the East, against the Aces versus the Storm, two teams from the West. Um, so it kind of balances stuff out. It's not a situation where all six East teams make it and like two West teams go in. And worse again, the imbalances. It usually hits four four anyway, but the imbalance um, will only be five three. And again, in a situation where you know the not the non seeding, the no conference seeding. Where you may get an East team versus a West team in the first round, but like I said in the semifinals, it balanced up two East teams playing two West teams. Something the NBA I think should consider unconferencing the playoffs. Top 16 records make it. You may end up getting a year where it's 10 out the East and uh, six out the West. You may get a year where it's um, you know nine seven or something. I, you know I don't expect massive massive swings, but it'll definitely be something. Um, it'll be a little bit of an imbalance in the NBA, but. Back to the WNBA, the Chicago Sky Connecticut Sun series, along with the uh, Las Vegas Aces, the Seattle Storm series are both tied at one heading on the road now. Uh, so the Sky uh, is going into Connecticut. They're getting their tied at one. Candace Parkins had two pretty much historical games back to back. Her Sky led her down the first game. They didn't win, uh, but they came through for her in the second game. And so now she has an opportunity to uh, either split or take both games in this series to get back to the WNBA Finals with her sky. Um, you know, it's not it's not just Candace Parker. That's Kalea Copper, who was the WNBA Finals MVP last year. There's Allie Quigley. Uh, there's Courtney Vandersloot. You know, that 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 team, have, that's a squad over there in Chicago. James Wade, who's the head coach of GM, put together a great squad. He knows how to coach them. So they are two wins away from getting back to the WNBA Finals. On the other side, which is unofficially the Western Conference, uh, the Las Vegas Aces and the Seattle Storm have been in an absolute war. Um, it leads me to think whoever wins that series is going to win the WNBA title. Uh, Asia Wilson and Brianna Stewart are 
or just a classic battle. Uh, they're the first people to ever have the stat lines they went at. I think it's like 35 and 5. Um, the first opposing teammates in the playoffs to ever do that. So you're looking at absolutely historical performances from the Aces, Asia Wilson. Um, he was defensive player of the year, if I'm remember it correctly. And Brianna Stewart of the Seattle Storm. Both play the forward position. Uh, so they are going at each other. It is absolutely beautiful to see that level of competition. The series uh, should be over by the time we return um, to the show. So I'm going to pick who I think is going to win these series. I have the Chicago Sky beating the Connecticut Sun in five. They're going to take all five games. They're going to split in Connecticut. And then home court advantage will carry Candace Parker. Literally, she's from Chicago. Uh, carry her. You've got uh, Kalea Copper. You've got Courtney Vanderstoot. You've got Allie Quigley. Maybe a little bit too much for the Connecticut Sun. So I have the Chicago Sky winning that series. And then in the unofficial West, I have the Las Vegas Aces uh, winning that series. They got the Defensive Player of the Year in Asia Wilson. They got the Coach of the Year in Becky Hammond. You've got Chelsea Gray. You've got Kelsey Plum. Um, you have Jackie Young. They have a pretty good squad over there in Vegas. But hey, Seattle's no slouch. You've got Sue Bird in her last ride. You've got Jewel Lewis. <laughs> You've got Brianna Stewart. Excuse me. Um, you have these guys or these ladies, rather, that can ball their brains out. And so, as like I said, it won't be easy. I think that series is also going five. I just think home court advantage will carry uh, both teams, Chicago and Vegas, because Vegas has a crazy WNBA crowd support base. So I think both of those teams will ultimately get carried over the finish line, and they will play each other in the unofficial in the WNBA Finals uh, winner takes all. But up next, we're going to shift to our best for last, which is going to be a discussion on the greatest of all time, playing her final match, Serena Williams. Welcome back into the show, into the final segment. Thank you guys for rocking out with me. The target to, for this show is to be about 55 minutes. We're going to be actually a little less than that. So great job by me. Enjoy the timing and I appreciate you guys for rocking with me all the way through. Um, but the best for last is going to be about the greatest of all time playing her final match of Serena Williams. Serena Williams unfortunately lost uh, last night. And um, that was, she was going to retire after the U.S. Open, in which case she has officially done that because um, she lost in the third round of the U.S. Open. Her first loss in the third round of the U.S. Open um, for a very, a very, very early, um, she's not done that in years. She's not lost in the third round in uh, years in regards to uh, the U.S. Open. It's been a very long time. Serena Williams has done everything you can want to do on a tennis court. Like I said, she is uh, the greatest tennis player of all time. Um, argue with anybody you want to argue with. Let's just go through her accolades. She, at one point, went 186 consecutive weeks as the world number one tennis player. Uh, for, for just for time sake, a year is 52 weeks. 
She's a four-time Olympic gold medalist. She won 23 majors, second of all time. She won 367 major matches, and she has six U.S. Open titles and 73 career titles. She is truly one of one. She is truly one of the greatest, uh, to my opinion, she is the greatest tennis player of all time. Uh, absolute uh, kudos to you, Miss Williams. Uh, her speech after their match was very emotional. She thanked her father first, um, then she went to her mother. Then she, she said one of her famous lines, without Venus, there would be no Serena. Um, and so she absolutely put on a show one last time. In regards to the match, she could have won the match. Um, she had her opponent down 5-3, I want to say. And then the uh, she lost four straight lost four straight points. And she was in the first set, 7-5. Then she was up 5-2 or something like that in the second set. And ends up being in, the, in a tiebreaker of tiebreakers. She ended up having to war her way through a tiebreaker. By that point, her body was starting to weigh down. She was tired. Uh, she had just played doubles with Venus the night before in their last level doubles match. She just played doubles with Venus the night before. That could have played into her fatigue as well. Um, because she could have easily won that match in straight sets. Something like 6-3, six, 6-2. Six, um, and then, you know, still battling on, but unfortunately she was unable to do so, but it wrapped up the greatest career in tennis ever. She's the greatest player ever. What she did for the African American community in terms of tennis relations can only be compared to a few athletes. Uh, Arthur Ashe, who she was, who stadium she was, the, name, the stadium she was playing in is named after Arthur Ashe, what he did for tennis for the African American community. And of course, Tiger Woods for golf, what he did for African American community in golf would be the only thing that would compare um, to what Serena did off the off the court. You know, the impact on the court is impeachable. Uh, unimpeachable, rather. So, absolutely amazing to have watched her play. She's been playing my whole life. So, it's going to be a little weird not seeing her run around the tennis court. Um, but that is going to be... I'm going to miss that signature Serena almost cry face. And then she battles back. I'm going to miss the wild emotions. I'm going to miss her being this strong, powerful woman. Playing against people half her size and having more strength, having more stamina, having more power. And of course, having better technique than them. Flat out overpowering and outskilling her opponents. And I'm going to miss all those moments, but uh, she's, she's officially done. She wants to expand her family one more time, uh, which was the mo which is the main motivation for, for her retirement, was that she was going looking to expand her family one more time while she still had the time. But we're going to miss you, Serena. Thank you so much. You are truly the GOAT. Um, and happy retirement. I hope you enjoy it. But that is all we have for today. I hope you have a have, guys have a great rest of your Saturday night. If you hear this when it comes out. Or a great rest of your day whenever you hear it. But this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out. <laughs>